Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 68 of the Ski Podcast. Uh, technically, this is our 101st episode with all the uh, special episodes we've uh, had. So there's plenty to catch up with if uh, this is your first time of listening to the show. And we do have, I'd like to thank our listeners across the world. We've, I've seen we've had listeners in Japan and India and the uh, UAE recently. So welcome to you. And of course, I would like to thank Switzerland Tourism who are great supporters of this show. And a little bit later, we're going to have a feature about the Jungfrau uh, region. So we'll find out a little bit more about Switzerland. But I'd like to start by introducing my guest for today. Uh, I have Jasmine Taylor with me. She is a Team GB telemarker skier with over 30 World Cup podiums. And she's previously been on the show in episode uh, 60. Plus, we've got a special about her. Hi, Jasmine. How are you today? Hello, I'm, I'm well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good, excellent. We also have a um, regular guest and friend of the show, Alex Irwin, who is out in Courcheval and runs the YouTube channel 150 Days of Winter. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Ian. Excellent. Right. Let's start asking. And I'm going to start with uh, with Jasmine, because uh, you did tell me that you were just taking your ski boots off. Uh, when did you last ski? I last skied, actually. Uh on Saturday I was racing just up the road but I'm taking my ski boots off now because I just finished a ski lesson of course the um the pistes are not open in France so it's just pew pew um you know like toddlers for me at the moment so I'm in my ski boots do you mean you were teaching a lesson I was teaching yes yeah right yeah I did think that someone who's competing at international level probably wasn't taking a lesson themselves (laughs) (laughs) Not today, anyway. And Alex, what about yourself? When did you last go skiing? Well, purely just so I could say that I skied today, I went ski touring this morning, uh, and it was absolutely amazing. Excellent. Where did, you're obviously in Courcheval. Whereabouts did you go to? Uh, I just ski toured up the Belcott towards the Alti Port. It was a beautiful blue sky, sunny morning, and uh, yeah. Got the heart going, a little bit of exercise, nothing more. Okay, excellent. Well, we're going to come back to Courcheval a little bit later on. And you can tell us a little bit more about it. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we we talk about our chances of skiing this season, but I've kind of given up doing that uh, now for the uh, for the British market. The lifts were meant to start turning again in Italy today, but unfortunately, right at the last minute, they decided that's not going to happen. We'll stay positive, but... One thing I have noticed since our last episode is there's been quite a bit of avalanche danger because there's been a lot of snow uh, in the Alps. Uh, I've certainly read about uh, Zermatt and Meribel Val d'Isere where they've had uh, avalanches. But I did see one story which really uh, I liked a lot. I don't know if you saw this at all, Jasmine. It was about two people who were caught in an avalanche in Switzerland. They were both literally buried by the snow, but they were fortunately walking with their dogs at the time and the dogs barking led to them being rescued and I just felt that was a very heartwarming story. I don't know, have you seen any avalanches in your area at all or in your travels? Um well where we're training up in Chinanjou in Passy, you can see up in the high cliffs and you can hear it as well, just avalanche after avalanche. Um really? Yeah, it's it's um I think it's quite um risky at the moment in the Chamonix Valley. Right. Alex, over in the three valleys where you're based there was an avalanche that took out one of the uh, chairlifts. I think it was a Chatelet chairlift in uh, in Meribel. Did you uh, see that at all? Uh, yeah, Monterey. It uh, literally, 
you know, you see the chairs just mangled and just like flipped upside down like they're nothing. And the, and the shed at the bottom was like just destroyed completely. So, uh, yes. Wow. I see. I assume that wasn't a controlled avalanche by the peace Corps. That is literally <laughs> something not, no. that. Well, so that fortunately it does feel like that period has sort of passed now. Um, but there, there's another. I'll I'll stick a, a link into the show notes about the the dog saving uh, people, and also in Val d'Isere there were some people walking uh, from Ladai back into town who get trapped, who got trapped in an avalanche, and there was a whole team of people out who managed to find them. And in fact, I think in that one, the father was, I think he was under the snow for two hours and he was still found and he was alive i'll I'll stick a link in there as well some more positive news just uh, um turning it slightly towards austria um you know we we've mentioned before on the ski podcast about how the press have kind of misrepresented the situation as to what's been going on with with british people in the alps there was that story in relation to verbier which we covered in episode 65 and then wengen in episode 66 and there's been some really good reporting by abby butcher who regular listeners uh, to the show will remember she appeared on the show in a, a episode 65 and she told us all about her research into verbier and how she established that you know those stories weren't quite correct and she's a really good article for the telegraph about this kind of super spreader story of british ski instructors in in jochberg in austria and uh, again I don't have her on today. We'll, we'll get her on in the future. But that one was was not correct. And if you read about it, it really seems quite scary. They were almost locked into their property. Uh, and I can also tell you that I spoke to the tourist officer in St. Anton about that story about 96 people being arrested and, and fined. And that they told me that was also uh, incorrect. So I'm going to keep a lookout for, uh, for Brit bashing. Uh, hopefully, maybe one day it won't be an issue anymore. Anyway, let's travel around to a couple of ski resorts. Christian Cobbley contacted us recently and he said, I'm I'm really enjoying those ski resorts vicariously for people like uh, you, Alex and Jasmine, who are lucky enough to live in ski resorts. So we're going to um, drop in now a little message from uh, from Mike Richards. He's going to tell us about skiing in Wales. Good morning, Ian, and a warm welcome from a wintry and windy Wales here on Friday, the 12th of February. It's been a great start to 2021 with three storm systems moving through the mountains of Carmarthenshire and Powys, providing plenty of day skiing in and around the Brecon Beacons National Park. To date, I've managed 18 day skiing with my ski partner, Chris Morris, up to 35 days, eclipsing my season best 31 days back in the winter of 2009-2010. This most recent storm has been accompanied with consistent below freezing temperatures that set up a nice base for the next snowfall, which is due this weekend. Conditions have ranged from frosted grass to boot top powder and everything in between. We've been blessed with plenty of sunny days, which has made route finding and skiing in the above tree line terrain easy and extremely enjoyable. Typically, we manage four to seven days in the latter half of this month, four to seven days in March, three to five days in April and even the odd day in May. So if the stars align, Chris could well notch up his half century this winter. A tremendous feat, fair play. To see images and videos of our days out, please see my Instagram page at MikeTheSnow or type in hashtag SkiTheBeacons in the search bar. Until next time, if it's snowing, I'm going. Welcome to the Sun Valley Mountain Report. I am Neil Bradshaw, Mayor of the City of Ketchum, the town that is home to the Sun Valley Resort's major ski mountain. 
So far, we've had a fantastic season of snow and sun, and it looks set to continue with more snow in the forecast. No question, the, stor- the storm of a couple weeks ago that brought more than three feet of snow was a great refresh and opened up even more terrain. It also caused a period of extreme avalanche danger and a short closure of the mountain uh, for safety concerns followed. Since that time, avalanche conditions have improved and the mountain is skiing well. Our businesses, restaurants and hotels are all open with adapted COVID protocols for operating in the safest manner. Upon your arrival in Ketchum Sun Valley, we ask that you follow those protocols uh, that include mask wearing in most instances, especially where social, social distancing is not possible. Further afield, backcountry touring conditions are settling down now after quite a long period of dangerous avalanche conditions. We continue to encourage only low angle skiing as a recent snowfall and wind drifting are still creating dangerous avalanche conditions at upper elevations. Idaho has more public land than any other state in the lower 48. So finding your own little stash of fresh powder is not hard to do. Earning your turns is what it's all about. So I encourage you to get out there, ideally with a guide if you're new to the area, and go and find your own private Idaho. I hope that this report gives you a little flavor of all that is on offer here. We are open for business and encourage you to make the journey. We understand that COVID travel restrictions in your own country may prevent you from making the trip this year. However, we encourage you to put Ketchum and Sun Valley on your bucket list if you like champagne powder and bluebird skies. Thanks for listening. Cheers. And Mike's report just then was followed by uh, Neil from Sun Valley. And that's really great to have someone from the other side of the pond uh, reporting for us. We're going to have a little uh, interview with Dan Egan, also who was out in Big Sky in Montana. But let's go closer to home. Alex, you're in Courchevel. Um, I have seen this story about how there actually is a piste open in Courchevel and people can go skiing. Can you tell us anything about that? Uh, yeah, uh, basically at the highest point of where the road goes in Courchevel, which is just above the Altiport, um, they are allowing people to drive or take buses or taxis up to the top of the piste and to uh, ski down. Uh, so they've actually they've actually pieced that run, have they? They've pieced quite a few runs around a run resort, but this one is manicured to within an inch of its life. Right. And is it just down to 1850 or does it go beyond? Does it go down to 1300 to La Prat, for example? People, even before this, have been skiing, taking the bus and going up as far as they can and then skiing down to La Prat, uh, where they shouldn't be officially doing it, but that hasn't stopped them. So yeah. by making I mean, maybe official... maybe. Yeah, why wouldn't you? I mean, if you could, the Nevettes have been running in resort, right? So you could get on the Nevette legally with your skis, take the lift that, you know, you're wearing a mask and everything, social distancing, get off and then ski back down again. I mean, how busy is it in resort at the moment? Because normally this would be the busiest week of the year in Courchevel. Yeah, it's it's busier than it's been, but that is by no means like maybe like it's busy for like low season at the end of season, maybe. So, so is is not busy. Obviously, there's a curfew in France at the moment. So, uh, shops and restaurants, etc., they're all closing at six. But in in the day, there's no queuing for lifts. But on that, what about on that? Are there, are there many ski school classes going on? Uh, mainly, like I say, down the Belcot 
is uh, the main people who are using the Belcott piece are all junior ski schools. And so the, the, the more grown up kids get to use one of the drag lifts to go up to the Stade de Slalom and, and do their stuff. Very envious. I wish I could pretend to be a member of the club de sport. But, uh, you know, just generally, most of the, most of the people on the piece are all other 10 year old kids. You know, uh, ski I, I, I could imagine it though, uh, Alex, because you're quite friends with some of the club this ball people, aren't you? So, could you not like get, get some bib off them and you know, pretend you're a member of the junior race team? And uh, I, 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 the I don't think I can pass as like a teenager anymore when it comes to like being <laughs> on skis, you know. So, but that's interesting. So, you've got that lift open for it's not elite level but it's competitive level uh racing and then you've got beginners who are able to uh, go down the uh, belcott piece and you've got people who can go ski touring uh you, you know on offer as well because there was a bit of negative feedback on on social media i noticed after there was this story about how people could ski in Korshvall, people saying, oh, you know, it's um, it's really bad for the environment. They're letting people, you know, use their cars and drive, etc., which seemed a little reductive to me. I mean, I'm all in favour of environmental issues, but uh, the volume of people out there is so low, right? And a lot of people must be travelling up by minibus. No, I mean, I, I looked at there was a traffic jam only because the road was like it was like a one and a half track road that goes the final distance. And so there's a bit of a traffic jam. But sorry, there was a, there was a, a traffic jam. Is this a regular occurrence? A traffic jam to get to the altiport, the highest point? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because all the, you get to it, you've got to turn around and come back again. And, right. and it's just people were not being, you know, they were all driving down the middle of the road. Ah, OK, OK. Yeah. Because I noticed that in Meribel on the other side of the valley, they had people um getting into the Nevets, going up to Mirabel Altipore and then skiing down. And they appear to have panicked and uh, completely reduced their Nevet service. So they're only doing one right in the early in the morning and one in the afternoon evening for people who are working because they were concerned about maybe the number of people who were taking it to go skiing. Uh, I guess so. I mean, the the buses that go up from Korshaval are very small buses. They're not the big they're not the full-size buses that do it whereas in Mirabel you have the full-size buses and as I said the prospect of being stuck in a massive bus um I presume it goes up to like the rond-point the piece yeah uh, it it goes even further than the rond-point I think yeah because that's quite a long piece that comes down so whereas the Belcott's flat that is it's a nice run but it's i think they're taking the mick really it's so interesting isn't it because uh, you know i feel for the french ski resorts because at the same time as you're not allowed to open lifts the metro in paris is open and you know the the various cities that have cable cars they're all open uh, and people can travel in those but you can't travel uh, you know in one in a ski resort it does feel a little bit like skiers get uh, vilified we're still suffering from that Ishkul uh, PR uh, from last season. Okay, well, let's be more uh, positive. Let's, uh, Jasmine, you have been um, skiing over. Did you say Planjou is where you've been uh, skiing just now? It is, yeah. We've um, we've been lucky enough to train. They open just one Pommer, but we have access to a good training piece. So, are you are you sharing yeah. that with all the uh, the club this sport kids as well? <laughs> Yeah, there are there are kids as well, and 
we have the British team, the French team, but we actually just had the World Cup hosted there. So we had a couple of races cancelled in Slovenia and then a couple right. of races cancelled, actually two French races cancelled. So uh, Passy took on these four cancelled race days and they just held an event. So really quick organisation and right. an amazing replacement race. The days okay, lost. and and just to clar clarify for people who might not be familiar, then where is Planjou? It's sort of in the middle of nowhere, actually. It's um, <laughs> it's part of the Chamonix Valley, so it's under the same ski pass, but uh, it's about a half hour drive from Les Uches, and um, it's sort of down the valley first towards Salange, and then it's up the other side, so. Yeah, I think in in uh, summer a lot of people cycle up there, and also people go paraponting from there as well. Is that is that correct? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So if you were driving, if you were driving into Chamonix, anyone who's ever done that drive, you come along the valley floor, and then when you start to go on that flyover, it's as you're going up the flyover, it's up over to your left, I think, uh, somewhere over in that direction. Yeah, and it's actually yeah. a really nice little resort. Really. Um... Yeah, it's really pretty, very picturesque, and you have the best view, I think, probably of Mont Blanc out there. So, so, so you've been race training and racing there just now, and you had some races last week, uh, which are obviously on the on the Fist Telemark uh, circuit. How did they go? They went all right, actually. I don't have any uh, really good news to report, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no podiums, but I had a fifth and a fourth. And a sixth, so I'm not I'm not too far off. I mean, that's great. When you've got thirty plus World Cup podiums under your belt already, making you uh, Britain's most successful alpine uh, skier, then you don't need to worry about it too much. But I bet you were gutted about the fourth. Yeah, everyone says that. Everyone's like, "Oh, it's the worst place," but I'd actually rather fourth than fifth. So, <laughs> in in some ways, it's annoying, but in others, you. It's, you know, you're still up there and you know you're still competitive, so. And they all contribute towards a, an overall season ranking as well, right? That's right, yeah. Each position you earn a certain amount of points and then at the end of the season those points are tallied up and you have the overall um, World Cup ranking, so in each discipline, but then also the total ranking as well. So you, th this was in France, but I think the last time I spoke to you, you were about to go to Austria to compete as well, weren't you? Is is, is that right? And how did that go? Germany, yeah, and Germany, right. Germany went well. I had, um, I did have a podium in Germany. I finished second. But I'm I'm approaching things slightly differently this year, and I guess some days it pays off, and some days it doesn't pay off so much. Yeah, what is that? A higher a higher risk strategy is how is that? Yeah, it is. It is because I, I feel that I want to push the limit more, leave the comfort zone, and I, obviously you, you're out of your comfort zone when you're racing. But I feel that I'm I'm not at my limit, and that's what I'm trying to find. Well, you know, as as someone, you know, I don't compete anywhere near that level uh, in sport, but I do do a bit. And, you, you know, you have to, it takes a while to learn where that point is and how to get the maximum out of it, doesn't it? And the, sometimes the only way you can do that is to experiment in races. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing that really compares to the stress you're under when you compete and the adrenaline 
it is different from training as much as you try and replicate with timing and training with competitors that kind of thing you you still don't have the same effect when you compete so yeah it is it's it's um it's kind of a learn on the job type experience that one can i can i ask i mean presumably it's the same group of uh athletes or a similar group of athletes do you know your competitors fairly well is it tricky when you see them on the the start line and someone does well and you know you would have obviously preferred it can you be happy for them or do you kind of stick them in a box and not really focus on them no in telemarkets um it's actually quite friendly so it's it's obviously competitive but we're also we're friends it's like a family if you like and because the sport is small and we're trying to develop it there's there's a common goal to push sport up to a new level as well so all athletes share that all coaches organizers everyone um and then of course race day comes and everybody Hmm. wants to be as wants to be the best so that's normal and that's nice but yes everyone knows each other quite well but that that doesn't detract from it i think we all have this mutual appreciation of telling mark turn i think probably like they have in freestyle a little bit because they do such amazing tricks um so there's there's that as well as the competitive element because i think i recall from when you were on the show before and we were talking about it that you know you obviously complete in in different disciplines within uh, telemark because you have the uh, the sprint races and then classic races is that correct that is correct and we also have a parallel um so three right. different disciplines but uh they all require a slightly different skill set because the classic is very long and grueling um the sprint is is more over a minute so similar sort of duration to alpine ski racing and then the parallel is head-to-head knockout so shorter duration but you must repeat more times so it's a higher intensity but more frequent and then but less time i'm not explaining it well but I can, yeah. I, I can I can totally understand how the you know the head to head thing is a completely different um you know as you say skill set in the sprint competition what are the elements of that you are going on a course that combines a bit of slalom skiing and a bit of kind of what I would understand to be sort of cross country skiing yeah so all three of the telemark disciplines have four elements so they have the giant slalom they have the jump have a giant bank turn and a cross-country skate so all of them include that it's just that in the sprint you have say 20 to 30 gs gates giant slalom gates with the jump with the bank turn and maybe 20 seconds 25 seconds of skating so that's about a minute to a minute 30 in duration but you repeat twice so it's a time trial with the combined time and you have penalties in there as well if you don't Keep the correct stance um and then the classic is just one run so one time trial but it's about two to three minutes in duration so much longer uh, maybe 40 to 60 gs gate so it's very grueling <clears throat> and then the head-to-head knockout is about 40 to 50 seconds duration you have maybe 
15, 20 GS gates, it's a much straighter course normally. That's just the style of setting they use. So it's a much straighter course. You enter the loom generally at the same time, the bank turn at the same time, and then you have uh, skating. So if you if you get a penalty, you have to do a longer skate. So that's how they, they get around that one. I know you've told me this stuff before, and if listener, if you listen to our special podcast interview with Jasmine, you would know all of this as well. Uh, but remind, I mean, I, I, I did an interview the other day, uh, just a, a short thing for someone that was saying, what was I looking forward to most about the uh, Winter Olympics and, or, and what do I want to watch the most? And I said, oh, I really love the ski across and the board across because those events are so dynamic uh, and there's so much going on in them. Now, they are head to head, you know, at the time. But it strikes me that um, Telemark is very, you know, visual must be quite frustrating that it doesn't get a higher um, level of awareness than it has at the moment. It can be frustrating. It can be, but I mean, it's it's not really in my hands as a racer to <laughs> to change it too much. I just think people in Telemark, we we love the sport so much. There's so much passion for it, and it's a shame that more people don't have access to it in the same way or. Um, you know, I just I just want everybody to know the joy of Telemark skiing, really. But probably because I love it so much, I imagine everyone will. But well, it might it might be interesting because certainly um, the number of people who have been doing cross country this winter has gone up significantly. People who are in ski resorts, and we've reported before about how the the sales of cross country skis uh, have gone through the roof so maybe there'll be people who will segue on from cross country skiing to telemark skiing if they if they like the feel for it and, and get a, a sense for it can i ask you something else in jasmine about you've obviously been from france to germany uh, back to uh, france again with the traveling and things like this do you get an exemption as a, a kind of an elite level athlete from quarantine and, and issues like that yes you do so uh, before leaving the country you have to have um a negative pcr test so you have to have that but you also need an official invitation from the national governing body of that country inviting you to compete at least that's how we do it in telemark so when we went to germany we had to have an invitation with our name on it and we had to enter the country with that test, that negative test. And then once we were on place, we had another test. So that yeah. had to be negative as well. And then, then you create a kind of bubble. So all the organisers, coaches, everybody working on the hill have had the same thing. Um, and then masks at all time, you have to be sensible because we're very yeah. lucky to be competing in the first place. Of course, place. So yeah. So it's important right. to respect the rules. And what, what's the, what's the uh, next step on the on the <laughs> tour for this winter? Then are there more events scheduled? There are. Yeah, we're off to Tion in Switzerland for World Cup finals in in March, beginning of March. Um, okay. And then there's the World Junior Championships. I'm not a junior anymore, but they are happening nonetheless. Um, yeah. They're also in Switzerland. And then we have actually the World Championships again in Switzerland. So it's a big Swiss okay. finale for us. Where are the so World Championships? They're going to be in Murren. Okay. Right, Murren. Okay, well, we're going to have a report yeah. on Murren in a few weeks' time. 
be uh, um, a good uh, intro for someone who wants to know a little bit more about it. Okay, well, that, that's brilliant. That's brilliant, Jasmine. Thanks for that update. And best of luck uh, when you go over to Tion and then Murren uh, later in the uh, season. We'll definitely be be following you. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but elsewhere in the Team GB camp, uh, Charlotte Banks uh, recently won the Ski Across World Championships. And I believe that she is now the first snowboard world champion or first British snowboard world champion. We actually, I interviewed Charlotte a few years back now. It was episode 25 because she used to be on the French team and she came over to the uh, to the British team. So that is a, was a bit of a coup at the time. And now she's become a world champion. Evidently, she's in the... Uh, in the hunt for a medal at the Olympics. So that's uh, that's very encouraging. Okay, well, this is a super stop press. This happened after we recorded the podcast and I managed to get a, a quick interview with Charlotte Banks to congratulate her on her win. Great, I'm joined by Charlotte Banks, who is out in Austria. And firstly, Charlotte, I've got to offer you congratulations because uh, superbly, you are now um, Snowball Cross World Champion. Well done. Thank you very much. That was last last week in Sweden, was it? Yeah, exactly. So we were up in Sweden for the World Championships last week. I watched the race. Um, it was it was very close. Uh, you obviously your tactics, it seemed to me, were to be try and get that speed coming off the bank turns. Is that your uh, is that your normal strategy? Yeah, exactly. I think I'm pretty good in the turns and. Yeah, I tried to to use that to my advantage. Um, I wasn't doing very good starts, so I just had to come from the back. And then, yeah, just try and generate as much speed as possible for that last straight line. It was super close at the line. Do you have any idea how close the girls were behind you? Well, no. I mean, yeah, I was out in front and I knew I had good speed on the last uh, straight line. So with fast boards, so I was yeah trying to give it my all and then I made a massive mistake so I was like just stay on your feet and I knew I I was pretty sure that I knew that Belle well one of the girls had um had made a similar mistake to me behind me so I was yep. like well just try and give it everything and go for the medal I think yeah well yeah. I think it makes you Britain's first snowboard uh, world champion now um obviously Billy Morgan picked up a medal for snowboarding in the last Olympics I know that you have been to two uh, Olympics previously and I should just add at this point I was lucky enough to interview Charlotte uh, when you joined Team GB because previously you competed for France born in Britain brought up in France primarily and moved back to the British team. And listen, if you want to hear more about that, listen to, I think it's episode 25. I'll drop a link into the show notes. But you're at Sochi. I think you came 17th there at Pyeongchang, 7th. What would your aspirations be then for for Beijing 2022? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I've been to two Olympics. They've never really gone my way and I've always been frustrated. So I think the main aim is to, to go there and to race as yeah as well as I can and be satisfied with how I'm riding I think that the Olympics is for us is a yeah we're brought onto the main main show and with with big tracks normally so really fun to ride and I think that I just want to go and yeah give it my all and have fun 
obviously you know you won the gold which is which is tremendous but perhaps not so unexpected because you've already won a silver in the world championships before but fantastic to see as well that ollie davis got fourth place in the uh, skier cross and i think that's the first or the highest best ever result for a brit in one of the skier cross international races yeah exactly i think he he made history and it was his first final as well so really he rode well all all day and it was just impressive to watch we were just uh, boarding the plane whilst we were watching it so it was pretty yeah. it was pretty fun and yeah cheering him on and hopefully you know we'll be pumped for the for the olympics in uh, next year we've also got the uh, alpine ski world championships going on in cortina at the moment they had the downhill races at the weekend. Uh, British interest really revolves around Dave riding. And I think he will be racing in the slalom uh, later on this week. So in our next update, we'll uh, we'll find out how that's gone on. Let's go to Switzerland now. Charlie, who has been uh, reporting for us from Switzerland this winter, uh, went out to the Jungfrau region, to Grindelwald and Wengen. We reported on the new Eiger Express lift um, back in episode 61. It hadn't opened at the time. So uh, Charlie went out to test it and then to have a look at the uh, the famous Jungfraujoch. Hi all, this is Charlie and this week I bring you a report from the town of Grindelwald, part of the Jungfrau region in the Berner Oberland. Uh, I'm currently stood in the shadow of an imposing sheer wall of rock that comprises the Eiger North Face and along with the Monk and the Jungfrau, these are three very famous uh, peaks from this part of Switzerland. So a bit about the names, so the Eiger actually translates to ogre, which means uh, a man-eating giant in English. Um, and I think that's a pretty pretty, uh, pretty reasonable name for it, actually, given its reputation. And the monk and the Jungfrau, that, the monk is the, a monk, and the Jungfrau is a, is a girl, uh, or a young lady. And the first ascent of the Eiger was actually made by an Irish merchant, Charles Barrington, in 1858. He'd actually planned to make the first ascent on the Matterhorn, despite having relatively little mountain experience, but decided uh, he, couldn't, he, would, he would try for the Eiger instead because he couldn't afford to get the Zermatt. Besides mountaineering, this area is also one of the birthplaces of the sports of downhill and slalom skiing, with the foundation of the downhill-only club in Wengen and the Kandahar Club over in Muren. And today, the area of Grindelwald Wengen within the Jungfrau ski region boasts 21 lifts and 103 kilometres of marked pistes, as well as the longest downhill racetrack in the world, the legendary 4.5-kilometre battle from the Lauberhorn down into Wengen. So the weather conditions today are actually very nice, uh, sun's shining, uh, I think we've had a little bit of snow a bit higher up overnight, um, but earlier this week we had a bit of rain in the valley, so I think it's put some people off, but it, there's still quite a few people out enjoying the, the lovely conditions today. Uh, the avalanche risk is still fairly high, so caution is advised when going off piece, but the piece are looking very nice uh, and, and well prepared. Um, but right now I'm just uh, heading over to the, the Grindelwald terminal, uh, and to take the Eiger Express up to the Eiger Gletscher, which is the, the new investment that's been made here in Grindelwald. And hopefully I can give you a bit of an overview of the facilities and how this has helped speed up the process of getting on the mountain here uh, in the Jungfrau region. So right now we just got into the uh, Grindelwald terminal. It's a bit of a hive of activity this morning and I'm stood in between the uh, Eiger Express and the, the new Mannlichen uh, gondola uh, that's also been built this year. Uh, from the Grindelwald terminal at around 900 metres, uh, the Eiger Express runs up to Eiger Gletscher at 2,300 metres, which uh, has a journey time of about 15 minutes and has cut the previous journey time to this location by 47 minutes. The line is comprised of 44 cabins containing 26 seats each and is able to handle up to 2,200 people per hour. All cabins also have heated seats and Wi-Fi, as well as a huge glass exterior 
uh, which maximizes the view of the Eiger North Face on the left as you ride up. Additionally, there's also a VIP cabin, uh, complete with armchairs and red carpet, so very special if you ever get to ride up in that. So there's a gain of height of uh, 1,400 metres over a length of 6.5 kilometres, and the gondola uses three cables of 6 centimetre diameter, which means it's very stable in uh, high winds. The whole V-Cable uh, Way project, which is what the pro how, how the project is known, cost uh, 470 million Swiss francs, which is around 390 million uh, British pounds. And it took 908 days to build and 400 tonnes of assembly tools as well um, to, to get the project up and running. The three cable technology, as I mentioned before, meant that the gondola actually required fewer stanchions, with just seven in total, equating to roughly one every kilometre. And additionally, it did not require a new path to be cut through the forest, which uh, helped to preserve the habitat below. Additionally, there is also the other new gondola that I mentioned as well, the, the, the one that goes up directly to Manlichen. This one is comprised of 111 uh, gondolas, each carrying 10 people, and takes about 19 minutes to make the, the journey uh, of about 1,400 metres vertical climb. Uh, the, the Grindelwald Manneken gondola uh, replaces the old gondola that was installed there in the 19, uh, 1970s. And together with the Iger Express, the Grindelwald V Cableway is capable of carrying 4,000 guests per hour, which dramatically reduces the likelihood of waiting times and queues on busy days. And I have to say, for peak time this morning, there is absolutely no queues, just a hive of activity as people move through the tunnel, but it's all very efficient here. It's anticipated that the project will give a huge turbo boost to the local tourist economy and Thomas Beagler, the chairman of the Jungfrau Lift Company, is confident that following the uh, coronavirus crisis there will be a new era of global uh, growth in international tourism. Let's hope that's, the, uh, let's hope that's the case, but right now I'm headed over to the uh, Eiger Express and from there I'll take, uh, take the cable car up to the uh, Eiger Gletscher and then from there up to Jungfrau York. As I mentioned, 47 minutes faster than I could have done before. Uh, so hopefully from the top I'll be able to give you a bit of an update of uh, what the conditions are like up there. And uh, yeah, it's set to be uh, pretty spectacular views today. Right, so we've now just made it up to the Jungfrau Joch, the top of Europe, uh, saddled between the Jungfrau and the Monch at about 3,500 metres. I'm stood on top of the Sphinx Observatory, a very famous building, uh, looking over a commanding view over the Atletsch uh, Glacier, the longest glacier in the Alps, stretching 23 kilometres down into the Cantona Valley just below. Uh, but that's just one of the many glasses that make up a sea of ice that carpet the mountains around here. Uh, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, to my right I can also see uh, some pretty amazing 4,000 metre peaks, uh, very famous mountains like the Finster Erdhorn, uh, also the Jungfrau Monk are very, very visible today which is really nice. Uh, but sadly the weather is quite cloudy to the north but on a good day we'll be able to see the Vosges Mountains on the French-German border which is uh, pretty far, pretty far from here. Uh, Jungfrau Joch is reached by the Jungfrau Bahn, uh, which, which uh, runs up nine kilometres from Kleiner Scheidegg uh, through the centre of the Eiger, with two stops where you're able to get out and look out through the mountain. The building began in 1860, uh, 1896 and took 16 years to complete, with 80% of the line being underground. Another record here, Jungfrau Joch uh, station is also the highest railway station in Europe, which is uh, pretty impressive. Uh, with the building of the Eiger Express, it's now possible to get here, uh, get to the Eiger Gletscher station directly from Grindelwald, uh, which saves you 47 minutes from how you, uh, from how it was before, and it also takes some of the strain off Kleiner Scheidegg, which was the main station for for getting up to Jungfrau Joch uh, in in the past. Uh, but if you come on holiday, you absolutely must make sure you come up to the Jungfrau Joch. 
it is pretty incredible. Uh, probably one of the most special places in the world, I would say. Definitely one of the best places I've visited. And uh, yeah, I couldn't recommend it more. So we've just gone on the chairlift uh, at, at Vixie on the direction of uh, the Laberhorn. And from there, we're going to ski down into Vengen on the, on the downhill run. In terms of the conditions, they are very, very nice today. Uh, the piece are immaculate. And it looks to be very powdery off piece for the few people out there enjoying the sunshine uh, and making the most of the uh, fresh snow that we've had overnight. Uh, so yeah, very nice conditions here in Vengen. So we just skied down from the, the top of the Lauberhorn down into the finished area and uh, yeah, a little bit icy on the bottom there, but it was very, very nice. Gave you a bit of a perspective of how it probably would be uh, for the real thing. Uh, but yeah, awesome run. Really good. Uh, would thoroughly recommend it. Uh, thanks for that, Charlie. That uh, that was uh, great. Uh, listeners will remember that I also went out to Switzerland. Uh, the more time passes, the luckier it, it looks now. Went out to Cron Montana in December. Uh, I reviewed that trip in episode 65. But something I had to deal with at the time was getting insurance because, uh, you know, foreign office advice was against non-essential travel. And that led me to a company called Battleface. And I was really interested in these guys uh, when I had a look around their website and I wanted to find out a bit more and I ended up interviewing their CEO the other day. And today I'm delighted to welcome uh, Battleface uh, CEO, uh, Sasha Gainlin. Hi, Sasha. How are you? <laughs> Good. Hi, Ian. Whereabouts are you? are you today? Just remind us. I am in uh, Washington, D.C., right outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. Like I said, I found Battleface uh, fascinating when I had a little uh, look around it. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit more background about Battleface and who your original or typical customers were. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we as a team, we come from an extensive travel insurance background. For example, myself personally, that's all I've done since I was 19 is work in travel insurance. And my, my specialty is emergency medical assistance and travel assistance and helping people uh, when they need it the most. And over the last few years, we started to notice that a lot of the travel industry as a whole was going through a lot of changes in the last 10 plus years. But unfortunately, travel insurance did not. And what we were initially on the path to is to create a platform where it would be a win-win solution for both insurance companies and customers where consumers would be able to find the right products for the things that they were doing while they were traveling. And our initial customers were actually journalists, freelancers, independent contractors heading out to emerging markets, conflict zones, because they were always having a hard time finding the right policy. Right. So when you say, you know, emerging markets, conflict zones, what actual destinations are you talking about there? Um, uh, Afghanistan or, um, you know, Iraq and these kind of this kind of places or Sierra Leone. Uh, but surprisingly, actually, at some point it was even Ukraine uh, after okay. the conflict that Ukraine had with Russia. So it just depends on the territory. Um, uh, we quickly learned that uh, many, many destinations around the world had some type of problem one way or another. Yeah. And people still need to travel to these places. So therefore, they needed to get some kind of insurance in place. And and I think you said you worked in travel insurance for a long time. But, uh, you know, I did a little dig a bit of digging around on your website and your backgrounds in emergency medical assistance. Is that right? Could you, could yeah. you give us a bit of an insight into what that really involves? 
Sure. Um, so my my skill has always been in the emergency travel and medical assistance. So essentially, if you travel, let's say you're in the middle of nowhere in um, in Zimbabwe and you have an accident, I would be the guy on the phone arranging to get you in and out of different places, get you to the closest hospital, for example, or get you back home or send a nurse or a doctor. Um, and it's called in our world and in travel ins uh, insurance world is called emergency medical assistance. Um, we're not medically trained, but we are assistance coordinators uh, that essentially help you and your family to eventually safely get back home. Right. It sounds like a sort of scaled up job, perhaps of uh, what I experienced when I used to be a, a resort rep or resort manager for tour operators in the Alps, because you would get uh, from time to time, for example, a, a well, a resort cut off by an avalanche, let's say, mm -hmm. or a landslide, and you have to work out how to get your guests either from the resort or to the resort, or um, you know, those uh, occasions like that where you have to think on your feet mm -hmm. quite quickly, just on a different scale, just in a ski resort. You, I can imagine if you get the call from someone and they're on some dirt trail in Zimbabwe, that's a, a different matter entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you certainly learn so many different skills and your brain constantly thinks of different solutions because uh, every phone call is different, essentially, because it's all based on the location where you're at or the accident that you were a part of or injury or illness. And even simple matters like your nationality also matters. For example, which country can you enter without a visa? So if you're in, uh, let's say you're in Afghanistan and uh, and you need an emergency medical evacuation to India, and India is the closest place. But uh, most of the uh, most of the tourists require visa to enter the country, so you have to quickly think. You know, yeah. How you get around you can, that? Now you you mentioned yeah. Afghanistan just then. I believe one of the early trips that you were involved with the the logistics behind and the pre pre preparation for was a ski trip in Afghanistan. Is that right? Yeah, we've uh, surprisingly over the last few years after, of course, after we started Battleface, a lot of adventure travelers came our way and because uh, as they heard our story that we were um, trying to create a platform where for travelers that were looking for travel insurance and adventure travelers came to us and said, well, wait a minute, we have the same problem as well. Like in the case of a surfer, um, he or she doesn't really care about their suitcase being covered, but they would want to have their surfing board to be covered. So, <laughs> so naturally, we came across many, many interesting uh, uh, customers. And, and I never knew this, but skiing in Afghanistan uh, is a growing trend. Um, uh, it's it's an untouched territory. And, uh, and when I work with customers that are planning to go to Afghanistan to ski, there are quite a bit of many limitations. So, for example, what you were describing um, as an avalanche in Europe, you know, there are response services that have been already um, developed for those kind of circumstances. There's, you know, helicopters on standby or rescue services on standby. That does not exist in Afghanistan. Helicopter services alone are not allowed in Afghanistan at the moment. So <laughs> right. there's a lot of, uh, you have to go through quite a bit of preparation. Right. And who would the sort of clientele be? Who is going out to ski in Afghanistan just now? Someone making a movie or something? Um, no, no, no. There's uh, professional skiers that are very, you know, that's all they do. They go around the world and they go skiing in different parts of the world, especially the ones that are untouched. Um, uh, there are specialty tour operators that are um, 
specializing in these kind of trips. One comes to mind, the, uh, they're a very cool company, Ishkar, and they're out of uh, the UK as well. And they specialize in taking um, their uh, guests uh, to these destinations. And mostly, you know, all kinds of different nationalities, Americans, British, Russians, you know, it's uh, right. Well, I'll I'll have to add that one to my uh, long my bucket list. That's just getting longer and longer uh, every time I talk to yeah. people about different places to to go. So, um, Battleface added on that the winter sports, the more consumer winter sports mm-hmm. uh, uh, policy for this winter. Is that right, or was it last winter as well? It was for this winter. So many customers yeah. that came to us over the summer. They said we love this. You know, we love the uh, the simplicity of the website. We love the services, and you know, our and our nowadays our innovation essentially comes from customers, and and this came from customers who were planning to go back on winter holidays, and would be looking for uh, us uh, winter sports coverage. So we've added that uh, as an add-on to our products. Yeah, well, it certainly worked uh, for for me from my point of view. It made me feel comfortable when i was out in switzerland uh mm-hmm. because you know you just would never i would never ski without insurance and uh a, a tale behind this is that my uh, mum once came to visit me when i was in france doing a ski season from australia and mm-hmm. i'll cut this story down a little bit but effectively she broke her leg on the first run of the first day oh. and she didn't have insurance and it cost a fortune. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't obvious anyway, yeah, you always need to get insurance. But, you know, currently we can't ski from the UK, but uh, when we can travel, if it's likely, if it turns out that foreign office advice is for non-essential travel only, but you, listener, are determined to travel, then um, have a look at battleface.com and that's where you can get your uh, insurance to to cover you and put your mind at rest. Um, thanks very much, Sasha. I found that really interesting. I'm, go- I'm about to go and Google uh, ski trips to Afghanistan um, <laughs> and enjoy the rest of your day uh, over in the States. Oh, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me on, Ian. Somehow, I doubt my next guest had any insurance when he skied off the Berlin Wall or he skied in uh, Turkey back in the day. Um, But I do like exploring the history of skiing in the ski podcast. So Dan Egan is one of those guys who was free skiing back when it was known as extreme skiing. And I I talked to him last week. Yeah, in one of the videos or somewhere I was uh, when I was doing my research, just to find out a little bit more, I noticed you used the phrase "climb, ski, huck, repeat." (laughs) That was that was your life around that time, right? Absolutely, yes, for sure, exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, how did the invite first come then? Because Warren Miller obviously uh, has, you know, famously been making or had been making movies for a very long time. So, how did you first get involved in it? Well, back uh, back in the 70s and 80s, Warren would send cameramans out to the ski ski areas and this cameraman would check with the marketing directors and they would sort of, you know, allocate skiers towards uh, towards the event. So uh, my brother skied in his first movie in 1979. He was just a ski bum at Sugarbush washing dishes and uh, he was just a hot young kid skiing and this marketing director recommended him ski for the camera. Uh, in 85, I was washing dishes at the same resort at Sugarbush in Vermont. And the cameraman came back to town and uh, we got to ski together for the first time, my brother and I. I was sort of an unknown. I was taking time off from university and just finding my way, so to speak. Um, but then it really happened for us. Um, 
Warren took uh, John to Verbier uh, to ski with John Faulkner and, yep. uh, and uh, Mark Shapiro and the Kanban kids. And uh, that segment uh, was a very popular segment, 1986. Uh, the next year I had graduated college and we pestered Warren Miller until he sent a cameraman up to shoot us at Squaw Valley that winter. And really the rest was history. We just started skiing together and um, uh, it happened really fast for us. That's great. I noticed that Mark Shapiro has uh, has uh, written a, a review or a uh, yeah a review for the uh, book where he talked about that period of time when you were over in Verbier with um, John Faulkner as well. Is uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. And of course, and John what, group, yeah. What was the name of your um, your your crew your, that you were skiing as at the time? Well, we the, the, of course John Ace Cavalier and uh, Marco. Were known as uh, they lived in this cabin in Verbier, and that's sort of the scene uh, stems from that. For all of the imagery that the Americans saw uh, of European skiing, of course, John Faulkner did a lot of the stunts in the James Bond movies. Uh, Ace Cavalier was, you know, one of the leading photographers for Powder Magazine back here in the states, and Marco, of course, is worldwide famous for his photography. So. Coming out of that little cabin, of course, it was made famous again in Blizzard of Oz by Greg Stump. Um, and, it, you know, those three were, you know, sort of the ski bums of our day. They were living the life. They were professionals making money. And everybody passed through there. Scott Schmidt, Glenn Plake, the Egans, on and on, because we were all searching for, you know, the sort of the insider knowledge of, of Europe. So if you're in Verbier, you would check uh, with those guys. If you went over to Chamonix, a lot of times they would come with you or you'd find uh, other sources. John, uh, when he was in Chamonix in the late uh, in the mid 80s, skied with uh, Valentine and, and that crew. And, uh, you know, we cover that scene in the book where they're following Sha- Patrick Valentine through Chamonix. And one day Patrick picked John up thumbing. And John <laughs> says, oh, Patrick, you're one of my heroes. I've been following you around. And Patrick goes, yeah, I noticed we've been laughing. And he goes, why are you laughing? He goes, cause he says, because we know you Americans don't carry a rope. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. That, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. And so um, that was a, that was a time when, you know, before anyone had ever heard of free riding or free skiing, it was extreme skiing, wasn't it? And it was that era where that, that world was being created, right? Yeah, it really was, you know, um, you know, racing was a little stagnant at the time, particularly in the States, because the Mayer brothers had re- re- Phil and Steve had retired. Uh, and we we tie this in with the book. Uh, you know, really, it was the birth of the VHS and the VCR uh, combined with this sort of change in gears. Uh, the ski industry was looking for something exciting. You know, we were young. We were wearing day clothes suits. We had big hair and headbands, no helmets and just hucking off cliffs. And, uh, you know, we MTV'd extreme skiing. We glitz, we glamored it, we, we, we sponsored it. Uh, but, you know, because of the VHS tape and the VCR machine, extreme skiing became not so much a sport, but a form of entertainment. People would watch those tapes. You'd walk into Dick's T-Bar, of course, in Val He'd be playing our movies. Uh, and that was happening around the world. Yeah, it, for sure it was. I mean, I was doing ski seasons all through, or almost all through that period that you're in the uh, the Warren Miller uh, movies. And 
yeah, and it was just fantastic to be able to see, uh, you know, these these great runs putting down. W was there a, a favourite, perhaps, of uh, of the different scenes that you filmed in the Warren Miller movies? Well, I had gone to Warren early in my career and told my one to travel around the world wherever CNN was. So I wanted to go to world events. I wanted to tie skiing into a bigger audience. We jumped off the Berlin Wall in 1989. Uh, <laughs> we, we were in Red Square during the Paris Striker Revolt in 1990, right prior to Elbrus. We skied with the, uh, on, the, on the border of Iraq and, and uh, Turkey during the first Persian Gulf War. Um, and on and on it went like that. You know, when they murdered Ceausescu, we went to Romania. Uh, we were in Yugoslavia a week before the Civil War started in Slovenia. Um, and by tying our skiing to mountain cultures around the world, to worldwide events, uh, these became very, very popular in the films. Uh, and of course, uh, Hannes Schneider had uh, once said, if everybody skied, there'd be no wars. And Warren would often repeat that during our segments. And um, we were sort of, you know, on a track for that. Uh, and it was so fun to be part of that. And, you know, I, it's funny, if you look at the world now, you wouldn't be able to ski the locations we skied. The world has not become safer. Uh, a lot of the places we went, uh, you wouldn't go today. Yeah, I mean, that, that all of those locations you just listed off there, they just sound amazing. But I love that line yeah. that you're saying there. You know, if everybody skied, there'd be no wars. I completely uh, yeah. believe that uh and perhaps i think another thing I, I believe that warren miller might have said to you before is a say yes before you say no <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly he told me if i so yeah. They're, yeah they're throwing <laughs> these great ideas uh, at you like uh, i don't know romania or turkey or something like this well you know grasp the nettle is uh, another expression and you know now you've got all of those amazing experiences yeah. under your belt so the Berlin, the Berlin Wall, I take it there was no snow there. Did you just actually just, just huck it? How did that we, work? <laughs> we did. You know, we were, uh, we were, we had, we were crashing in a con, uh, in a, uh, an apartment in Val d'Isere and it was coming up to the British holidays. They were going to raise the rent. So we had to get out. So, uh, we borrowed a, we borrowed a van and, and, uh, had some time to kill. We drove all the way to the Berlin to, staged this event of jumping off the wall for freedom of course and uh we landed in mud puddles on the uh, east and the west side wow well that's amazing now if you'd like to listen to the full conversation there we have a ski podcast special uh which you can listen to that whole interview now i'm not sure maybe alex you do know dan egan but there are other extreme skiers from that era i believe in your time you've come across uh, glenn plake a couple of times uh, I have, uh, of course, with your help of organizing um, a team for, for the Boss to Boss. Uh, I had the pleasure of many years of watching him ski bumps, uh, which he is absolutely amazing at in Chamonix. And weren't, weren't you a, a judge with him for the Boss to Boss one time or something like that? I, I was indeed, yes. Oh, no, right, so not, you... no, I was a judge with his wife who had broken oh, okay. a leg. She broke okay. her leg, and so she was the judge. Did you get a Mohican specially for the occasion? I think I dyed my hair red that year for some strange reason, but uh, I've got a bit older and more sensible now. Right, regular listeners will know that I don't own my own skis, and I always hire from Intersport when I'm in the Alps. It's mainly because I don't like dragging my skis around with me, normally uh, travelling by train. 
Um, now, I don't know whether you consider this a bonus or not, but they have quite an amusing stream of random content on their Facebook page. Um, I will put it in the show notes, but if you haven't seen it yet, they have this series of yodel ski fails. It's quite hard to explain uh, verbally. I'll drop a little clip in, but you know, just have a look at it. It's very funny and worth a watch. okay we don't do so much kit but we're going to start doing a little bit more kit review on the uh, ski podcast but elan uh, have recently uh, released details of a new foldable ski called the elan voyager and you know it sounds you kind of think oh could it work but it looks quite convincing in the video which i'll stick in the uh, show notes alex i think you go to expo and you're very good on on kit and things like this the elan voyager ski what do you think would you use it will it be any good as you said when you see them dismantling it i'm going to put it not dismantling but bending it you think that can't work you know it just defies logic but apparently it works fine. I mean, it it's uh, well tested and works. You know, it's a great idea. Yeah, because you know what I was talking about before hiring skis is because they're a sh- you know a schlep to drag around the place. But Jasmine, if you could if you could get a ski that you could fold up and stick in your backpack, would that would that would you go for that type of product? I actually think why not? You know, if if they're pushing the limits of what's possible why not keep an open mind and try it but for sure it sounds uh sounds a bit different yeah exactly that was a thought in my mind you wonder how it would perform but you know it's an award-winning idea and it's a innovation and you know sales of skis have just gone down massively unless you've got unless you talk about ski touring i think the number of skis that people are buying just uh, isn't happening so much anymore so there you go innovation corner or kit review corner and we'll maybe review some more things in the next episode just going to want to cover a couple of quick reviews uh, jed ainsworth said uh, keeping the skiing spirit alive when we need it most uh, nick taylor said thanks for doing the podcast i've been listening over the last year and i've enjoyed dreaming of being on slopes when we can't sarah owen hughes says love the podcast well, that makes me feel sad not to be in chamonix in the winter and we know what you mean uh, jeffrey fantel who we answered his question in the last uh, episode about hiring uh, cars in Geneva. I said, keep up the great work. And Nicole Clark from Australia said, I love listening to your show all the way over in Australia. So to all of our down under listeners, uh, hi as well. And uh, Nicole also very kindly bought me a cup of tea via the Buy Me a Coffee uh, website. And uh, if you do enjoy the, uh, the podcast, you're very welcome to buy me a cuppa at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast and this week i would just like to thank uh these people for having done that so thank you to luke sipson jed ainsworth susie jones scott newsom christian bowden chris rose and christian cobley that is very kind of all of you so we're going to wrap up for today uh, i've got lots of things in the pipeline coming up i've got an interview with uh, martin bell uh, the older and possibly more successful of the uh, Bell brothers um, got an interview to find out how you become a pister. So some of those will be special episodes 
uh, just make sure you subscribe and never miss an episode. You can follow me at uh, Skipedia. I'd like to thank my guests today, uh, Alex and Jasmine. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, thanks to Switzerland Tourism for their support. And finally, listener, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the Ski Podcast at buymeacoffee.com. Researching, recording, editing and publishing the pod takes up a lot of my time. And don't get me wrong, I really enjoy it. You know, I love talking with people about skiing. But if you do enjoy listening to the podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case it would be a cup of tea, but the idea is the same. So just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.